0: doing a message series called I believe and I hope today as we move into the second part of it my my goal is to bring you to the feet of our Lord and and maybe see him in ways that you've never seen him before and be drawn into his presence in ways that maybe you didn't anticipate so before I begin I'm gonna ask his help in doing that would you mind bowing with me Father, we are grateful that you allow music to begin to shape our way of of understanding who you are. Uh, It is our soul and its way of of just connecting with you that um, we find um, so touched by words that um, bring us to your throne. And I pray that as we look at the words that have been written 2,000 years ago, that in a different way they would bring us to your feet as well. Just ask that you be with everyone in this room as you have called us here, that you would speak to each heart wherever we're at, and whatever the need is, and we all have needs, Father, that we would find a way to bring it to you as well. And so bless this time in your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I love that music so much because it talked about waves, which made me think of the Outer Banks and doing something that is a far cry from living in the seesaw of 60-degree weather, zero-degree weather, 60-degree weather, and then again. uh, It's a little much. I just like, I mean, is it too much to ask, 75, 80 degrees all the time? I mean, to me, if there's a... A hope in the new creation, it's got to include that. But, you know, as I was thinking about that, I also thought about um, uh, some different episodes that happened. And one that just stands out in my mind every time we go uh, involves uh, my youngest son and his first encounter with the ocean. And it was just so cool to watch him see it for the first time in real life and recognize uh, that uh, the ocean is a thing and that it's a thing to be enjoyed. Uh, and he discovered something else about the ocean. Uh, whenever he would run out to the waves as they were receding and they would start to come back in, he would scream at them, na-na-na-na-na, nana, nana, you can't get me. And then he'd he'd book it back up on the beach. And he did that about three or four times. Uh, But for whatever whatever reason, the waves decided they would come in a little quicker than they did before. And they just body slammed him down into the the surf. And I didn't hear him say that at that point. All I heard him say was, Mom! And uh, it was a sense of helplessness, but it was also a sense of respect and even fear because he wasn't really wanting to go back in the ocean much after that. And as, uh, as that scene kind of reminds me of how it is that we kind of go to the boundary of something and we recognize that it may be threatening and pretty soon we start to start to cordon ourselves off from anything that might be risky or threatening um, and insulate ourselves from all of those things. Why? Because, well, we fear. We fear that... They might have some devastating effect on us. And that fear can be so debilitating that we find ourselves um, really constrained moving this way or that way or this way or that way. And that really probably describes, in summary, the mindset of a lot of people that Jesus had encountered whenever he began to show everybody the face of God in the form of a man. They were locked down, and his job was to try to bring them into a, a better place, and they were longing for that, but they were, in their own right, either afraid or not really trusting in any way that anything could change or anybody could change it. And that's why whenever we go into the second part of this series that we're doing on I believe, called Jesus Can Restore My Life, and my question is do you believe that Jesus can restore the things in your life that are broken, that are out of sorts, that are dysfunctional? Perhaps it's not just your own health and your own sense of well-being or just your own lack of peace or maybe fear that, that, that is keeping you hung up. Maybe it's something that goes even beyond uh, the realm of your, your sense of control by The lives of other people and the impact that that's having on you or people that you love. And it expands out and ripples out into things that have to do with maybe the workplace and the circumstances that we have. And before we know it, we find ourselves helpless to do anything about it and just hoping that, against hope that things won't threaten us too much. And that's the state of affairs that God has seen us in for a very long time. And that was uh, a set of circumstances that were very real for most people, so much so that they were hoping that when God came, he would, he would deliver them from it. He would draw them out of all of the pain and fear and anxiety and worry and oppression. And when we look at that curtain that is being pulled back and we see the possibility of something on the other side That's what they were longing for and 2000 years later. That's what we're longing for. Now I want to set this up by uh, taking you back to one chapter in the Bible that is a description of Jesus in everyday life. What if you were to ask yourself, uh, what would Jesus look like if he showed up in this room today? Or maybe if someone asked you, who do you think Jesus is? What would you say? Now for me, I would like to go to the biblical story and try to unfold it a little bit and say this is what I understand as far as what his life meant and what it means for us. And it's a story that actually is is universal in what people were longing for and how it impacted their life. But it's also a story that's filled with surprises. So what I'd like to do, and just hopefully setting this up with some intrigue and, and some anticipation for knowing Jesus a little better, is showing just a brief clip from something called the Bible Project as people in Jesus' day and prior to that were thinking, when is somebody going to come and rescue us from the predicament that we were in or restore our lives in a way that we no longer, we no longer feel all of these things that make life so difficult. Let's go ahead and show it. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah.
1: The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Everything seems lost. But the poem goes on, there's a watchman on the city walls, and far out on the hills we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news! And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going when to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think. a Powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest. The one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus, begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so, the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him king. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world?
0: I just want to end it on that question. There's a lot more for that video, but the question is... How is God going to bring his reign over this world to bear? And how is that going to, on a ground level question, how is that going to impact your life or mine? What difference does it make? Because a number of people will go to church and go through a, a ritualized form of worship and leave it there and not really think about it the rest of the week until they come back again because that's just what they've been sort of conditioned or programmed to do. But there are other people who are asking the question, how is it that Jesus can make a difference in my life every day in all of the challenges that I face? And that's the question I think I, I really want to tackle as, as we bring ourselves before an image or a set of images that we find in Scripture that I think can speak not just to our brains but to our hearts in a way that says, now that's a God that is worthy of worship. And I'll tell you what I mean. In Luke cha- or in Matthew chapter 9, there's, a, there, there's an image of Jesus going to the, uh, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Capernaum that he had made his residency in for uh, the, the, the latter part of his ministry. And it was a place that was about 1,500 people and had a whole cross-section of people like our community does. Everybody with... Um, different uh, socioeconomic uh, means of, uh, of living and, and, um, and providing for their families, some very poor, some pretty wealthy. And it seems like as Matthew is telling the story in, uh, in, in the wake of him giving the Sermon on the Mount, he wants to show how all of those teachings that Jesus just spoke about take the form in everyday interactions. And I'm going to show you some snapshots that that occur. The first one is right out of the gate. It says, uh, Jesus is walking through the streets of his community. And just then, some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven.'" Not exactly what you would think as far as the flow of a savior going into the life of a person who's asking for healing, but on a more profound level, he's saying, I not only want to restore your ability to walk, I want to restore your soul. Well, that's the first one. Well, Jesus goes a little bit farther, and as he does, he's invited to dinner with, of all people, the most despised imaginable. Tax collectors, that is, fellow Jewish countrymen who have made an agreement with the Roman government that they will collect taxes from their own kind and then they will offer it back to the Roman government. A pretty despicable uh, and socially uh, outcast group alongside sinners, that is, people who, for whatever reason, had gave up on the whole idea of ever trying to connect with God. And all of a sudden, Jesus finds himself sitting down and enjoying a meal with them. Now, I don't know if, if you're like me, you've had your moments where you would feel that if God just showed up in your life, you'd be like, I don't think that I'm worthy of you being part of my, my life in any way, let alone sitting down and having dinner with me. But the shame and the, the social disconnectedness of all of these people for Jesus Not an issue, not a concern. They were saying, you know, Jesus, if I had shown up in the synagogue and you saw me, that would be the day that the lightning bolts would come pouring down or the roof would cave in. And I'm sure they had their own variation of saying, yeah, I'm not what you would call a candidate for religion. But yet it was those very people that Jesus said, I've come for you. And as he's... Engaging in conversation with these uh, socially not-so-desirable people, there's another group of people, surprisingly, who are saying, we're kind of sizing up based on a study that we're called to do on this life of this Jesus. And um, so far, we're not really liking what we're seeing. He isn't doing what is expected for anybody who would call themselves a representative of the religious establishment. He's going about it all wrong. See, there are a group of people called the Pharisees who were the, they were the gatekeepers of all things religious. If you wanted to know who God was, they would say that we're the only ones who can read the law, interpret it, and say this is how you apply it to your life. And in their mind, they were convinced That if there was a way to apply God's law to everyday life, they had already locked it down. You didn't need to go any further than them if you had any questions about what God expected of you when you lived your life out. Yet an interesting thing about this group of people who are starting to clue into Jesus' ground level interaction with undesirables and broken people... Is that they had really two issues going on in their life. And they may be issues that you and I have. That is. They liked the fact that they had. Basically locked down everything that the Bible said. And they had memorized it. And then taught it in such a way that. It limited God to those, those teachings. He was constrained by that. And the reason why. Not only is that a bad thing, but it was what was inside of their heart. Because one thing that people realize is if I can put somebody into a category or a type or I can give them a label, I can control them. At the heart of this was a desire to even control God, oddly enough, by religious people. Meaning that in their mind, if they represented God this way and other people saw a different angle to look at God through that wasn't wasn't the acceptable way, then they would they would condemn it or, or, or censor it. And Jesus just kinda of blew the lid off the whole thing. I mean the way he was doing it was totally, totally unconventional, if not unacceptable. He's just barging right into the lives of these unclean people and he's touching them, he's healing them, he's forgiving them of their sins, he's inviting them to the dinner table, he's broken all the rules. And this is very upsetting. And this is going to be in our report to the people that, well, that are even more powerful than us. And so that was their take. They weren't interested in seeing this form of God coming into their world and showing that side of what it means to deliver people from their sins or from their pain or from their fears. No, they, didn't, they, they couldn't see it. Matter of fact, they said, well, not only is this somebody that's a troublemaker, but as we read on, they got another label for him. So let's go to another episode. So Jesus continues his journey through this chapter, and while he does... Uh, There is, of all things, a religious leader, a synagogue ruler, it'd be like the pastor of the local church, who happened in this case to be a pretty wealthy person. Most of the time, a synagogue ruler was somebody that not only was well-educated in the scripture, but was economically well-resourced. It was one of your upstanding citizens of the community. And yet he also is playing for Jesus to do something regarding the deepest need that he has in his life. And in this case, it is the death of a child. And he goes up to Jesus, all the trappings of the role cast aside in a spirit of desperation. He just says, just lay your hands on her and she will live. And then right after that, There's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and as a result of the teachings of the law of the Pharisees, she had to remain disconnected from the community, or at least not get too close, because she was in violation of purity laws. Well, in her case, she doesn't even want to talk to Jesus, because in her mind, you don't talk or approach religious people. But her desperation and her need was so great that in her, in her reasoning, she thought, he is so powerful, if I just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. And sure enough, she was. And then there's a, a, another episode that we see going on. And that is, um, Jesus had a guy, or two guys rather, who were, who were blind and they were longing to find their sight restored and they were crying loudly have mercy on us son of David and it says when he entered the house the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them do you believe that I'm able to do this and they said to him yes Lord and he touched their eyes and said according to your faith let it be done to you So, so far we've cataloged uh, a number of people that are dealing with what were everyday issues in any community in the country that Jesus grew up in and probably any community ever anywhere. And each one of them had a need that was different. Whether it is the inability to walk or the inability to raise somebody from the dead to chronic health issues, to the loss of sight, to the fact that you are not wanting to associate with other people because of your occupation. All of those things kind of represent the brokenness that is going on in, in, in Jesus' very hometown. Now, and I just stopped there and I asked the question, what kind of brokenness is going on in, in this town? In, in this body of people, what, what is it that you have going on in your life that parallels those experiences? And maybe it's none of those, but if the chapter was a little bit longer, you could say, oh yeah, I'm having this problem with cancer, or I don't know how my, my relationships are ever going to be restored, or I don't know if I'll ever find a good place to work. I could probably just go to a person and ask you different questions, and somewhere in your life you would say, Yeah, but I have this need going on in my life. I do feel helpless. I feel out of control. I feel somewhat hopeless and maybe even a little desperate. And there's even a part of me that says, I doubt that Jesus really can help me out here. I know he can do those things, but that thing I got going on in my life is complicated. It's drawn out. It's, well, I don't know that it's ever going to get resolved. And interestingly enough, as I read these stories, I find that pretty much everything unimaginable that would require divine intervention in order to change was made right. It was restored. And it leads me to wonder, even in your life, do I believe that Jesus can touch that area of my life and make it right. And probably if I ask you to lower your heads and and raise your hands by asking you the question, anybody who has a need in your life for the Lord, please just raise your hand. And nobody will know except for me. I, I have to wonder, would everyone in the room raise their hand? Or would there just be maybe one or two or none? And if there were were none, then I I would have to assume two things. That your lives are perfect and you guys probably need to be up here preaching to me because I need to raise my hand. Or you've convinced yourself that, well, I have a need, but I don't want to go there with it. I don't want to give it to the Lord. I don't want to ask the Lord for help. And that's the problem. That's what gets in the way for all of us, isn't it? It's a thing that says, I need the Lord, but I don't really need the Lord. Now, in all the people that I just read about, do you know of any of those people in that mix who just said, I'm just going to wait And let Jesus read my mind. And then after he does. I'll just trust him to fix what I have going on. Or to a person. Are they basically putting themselves out there. And saying Lord. I have a need. I am desperate. I need your help. Can you help me? And if there was a pattern here. I would say the pattern is. Every one of the people that received a healing touch of restoration in their lives. Every one of them, without exception, made the effort. They they saw Jesus, they went up to him, and they asked him for help. Now why is this so important? It's because I think when Jesus looks at us, he sees us more helpless than we realize. He sees us perhaps underutilizing the resources that we have in him. He sees us perhaps putting walls up between ourselves and him. Now, there's a word that the Bible uses called grace, and we all need it, don't we? But I'm guessing that the only way that grace can flow from the throne of God into your life is when we recognize the pathway for that grace to flow. And we respond to it. And you know what that pathway is? It's a pathway that says, Lord, I need help. Lord, I need you. Lord, will you take this area that's causing me so much grief? Will you help me with that? And that's the only way that grace flows because we, we may shut it off. You see, this group of people that were the religious people of all things who should know better were graceless people. I mean, they really had no grace to give people who didn't measure up in all the ways. They were pretty quick to condemn. They saw the, the blind people and the paralytic people and they even said, you know, that's really too bad for the synagogue ruler. But they didn't know grace. I mean, they didn't have the eyes of compassion that they should have had. And this is a big issue with the Lord. It's a huge issue. And you're going to find out here uh, towards the end of the sermon why. But I'm going to go a little bit further into this message because, you know, the question is, what would the reign of God look like if it began to go to work in, in the world, in your life? And I think we're starting to see what would happen. But there are things that get in the way. The religious leaders are in some ways a representation of the things that are also going on in our lives. And that is the the need to control so much so that we don't ask God for help. And God's just saying, I I, want to help you. I want to partner with you on this. I want to give you the grace that you need for that. So let's look at another part of this passage. It said, Having gone away, After they had gone away, a a demoniac um, who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the one who had been mute spoke. And the crowds were amazed and said, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, By the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. I mean, they had a flow chart here. They were making a decision about who Jesus was. They were sizing him up. And essentially they were saying... We've locked down what it means to be religious. He does not fit the criteria of what it means to be religious. Therefore, he can't be a religious person. If he's not a religious person, then he must be from the devil. And that was just the way it went. Pretty nice and neat and cut and dried. It's either a good guy or a bad guy. And by their own criteria, they said, nah, he may do all that stuff, but we're not, we're not buying it. And maybe there's a part of us that says, yeah, Jesus may do all that stuff, but we kind of have an idea of who he is and who he isn't, and we're not buying it. And what I'm trying to do, if anything, in this, in this message, is to help you see each of these lives and recognize what they were buying and maybe help you to see that there may be areas of your lives where, well, where you need Him more than you realize Well, let's look at how the dark side of this story unfolds because Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. You see, Jesus was saying, what I'm doing here, I'm going to do in every town that I go into. And not only that, I'm going to do it, um, I'm going to expand on that into every place that my name is proclaimed as good news. I'm going to leverage the situation in such a way that where my my presence is known, these things are going to happen, whether it's in this moment on the timeline or in 2019. I'm going I'm to be working and I'm going to be consistent that it's not going to change, that the needs that you have and the grace that I can offer I want to connect you in a way that those two meet every time you say, Lord, I have a need. Now, as a pastor, I I can look at many of you and I can see uh, stories that I've been a part of at some point in time or another. And most of them centered on a need. And the privilege that I have as a pastor is a person will come up to me and say, you know, I've got a health issue going on. I've got a deeply personal issue that I'm wrestling with. I have a a loved one that is so far from the Lord. I have a crisis happening. I mean, you name it. I've been pulled into those kind of situations. And what's so cool about it is there's a sense of expectation that when we pray that God will work. And what I found is that almost always when we do pray, God does work. Not always in the way that we hope, but in a way that at least brings his peace to bear, brings his grace to bear. And as God helps in the situation, maybe the grace is enough to help that person work through it in a way that they land in a good place with the Lord. Maybe they get through it and they recognize that that was the best thing that ever happened to them because it caused them to say I have a need I do need to depend upon the Lord I need to lean upon the Lord and it's almost like God is saying I want to be a part of your situation but if you don't ask I can't help I want you to recognize you have a need and I want you to bring it before me so that I can work in it and through it. Now, here's what I see as a pastor. It's one of the privileges of the job is I can track with people and I can see how they go through a place of doubt, disbelief, anger, really just a sense of frustration that God's not doing it the way that you want him to do it. But then if you stick with it long enough, if you watch and pray, you find that Staying close to God in that process does something even more. It causes you to hear him in ways that you hadn't heard him before. It's almost like you needed that problem in your life in order to hear his voice with clarity. And on the other side of it, one of my privileges as a pastor is just to see people mature in the faith through the process. See, when Jesus opened up his ministry, it wasn't just to take a one-time shot at a life that needed restored. It was the beginning of the process of those people starting to listen to his voice and hear it and to be shepherded by him and to grow in a relationship with him. And some of you are in this room because, well, you had that moment. And he spoke to you. And it evolved into something that when you move way beyond that painful experience of need, you recognize that every day of your life is filled with a variety of needs that he wants to be a part of. With every challenge that the workplace creates for you, with every kid that's not doing what you want him to do, with every fear that begins to take over your sense of belief, Jesus says, I want to be a part of that. And you just learn to trust him, to walk with him. Now, Jesus was initiating that process. And he was going to expand on it. And this is what drove him. There were two things. And I want to I look at two more passages of Scripture in there. It says, first of all, when he's asked, why, why are you hanging out with those losers? And Jesus said, those who are well, those who say, I don't have a need, they don't need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And it was a way of moving from just going to church on Sunday or whatever your tradition is, going through a set of rituals, observing them like your family has done for generations, but then the minute you're outside of the door, God is the farthest thing from your mind because out here, well, those kind of monsters, God's not equipped to handle. But the very reason for being in here is so that when you go out there, you're ready. And Jesus said, the religious leaders, you don't understand this? Where did your path diverge? Well, it gets even more intense with Jesus because he's looking at these guys and he's saying they've completely missed what the process is all about how restoration works and changes in ways that they wouldn't expect. But here's something else. In the, in the, at the end of the passage, it says, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And as he's just looking at people in all of their vulnerability, in all of their put on a stiff upper lip, in all of their stoicism, in all of their, I'm going to just power my way through this. Yet in all of their moments of quiet desperation, he's saying, they need a shepherd. And the religious people are, well, they're just, they're playing a game over here. They're not, even, they're not even in the game. They're not even present. They're not even aware of what's going on. Jesus' heart was so broken. It would be like us watching our children go and just flounder their way through life without any guidance, without any encouragement, making mistakes and us just not caring, doing things that would cause deep personal harm. And no one's around there to to guide them along the way. It's just sort of like throwing them out there and saying, good luck. If you make it to 18, props to you. Just make sure that when I'm an old person that you, you know, you take care of me. And it doesn't make any sense, does it, for us to take vulnerable beings and turn them loose to the forces at work in the world. Yet that's exactly what Jesus saw, and that's what broke his heart so much. Well, Jesus, when he began this ministry, had things that were even beyond just him being the miracle worker or the Messiah. His goal actually was to take what is happening and expand on it through the lives of other people. Now, one of the other things that I I can enjoy as a pastor is I've seen a number of you go through deep, gut-wrenching personal experiences. And then I've seen you come to the other side through doubt and unbelief and fear and anxiety and worry to recognizing and the humiliation of all that. You're just broken and you need God and then God just begins to work. And on the other side of that, You're much more mature. You're much more settled. There's a sense of peace about you that's weighty. And you know what Jesus says when that happens? You're ready. You're ready to help me do what I've been doing. Now think about this for a minute. If you're going through a rare form of cancer and you have no idea how this is going to play out, all you have is your disease, your imagination, and the possibility that you're going to die. Now, what do you do with that if that's just all you have? I mean, that's really all you've got to work with. Where does that go? What kind, of, what, what kind of day do you have when you're carrying that around and nothing more? But what happens if you throw into the mix the Lord? And I'm not just saying, yeah, you know what, the Lord be with you. But I'm just saying, how about if you went through that exact same form of cancer and you came alongside that person and you shared all of that stuff that you went through when you had it and how leaning on the Lord helped you through that in ways that, well, got you through it. What is it like when we experience pain and someone comes up to us and says, you know what? I know exactly what you're going through. And our first response is, oh no, you don't. But if they've been there in the exact same way, you're like, oh yes, you do. It seems like When a person has gone through a parallel experience, they have a voice into the ear of the person who's just beginning that struggle that no one else has. And Jesus' goal is to take the difficulties that we go through, help us to work through them, and then to come alongside other people and say, this is how God worked in my life. And he can work through your life the same way. How do I know that that's sort of his agenda in all of this? Because of how he ends it. How does he end it? Throw that verse back up if we can. That last one. He ends it by saying to his disciples, What you've just seen is the harvest, and it's plentiful. But the problem is nobody cares. Do you care? And if you do, pray. Have you ever prayed, God, would you fix that thing or would you help that situation to get better? Could you do something? Could you send somebody into that situation and help it come correct? Have you ever seen a problem and you're like, God, I know you can throw the right person at it. And then guess what he does? He said, well, since you're interested and since I'm God... Maybe you and I can tackle this one together. And so when you pray for workers of the harvest, just, just fair warning, God will start working on you. Because you start to clue into something that you weren't really paying attention to because you maybe thought you had it all locked down. Or you're just pretty content the way things are right now. And God said, we're going to shake that up a little bit at first you're going to be pretty darn mad, but eventually you're going to be thankful. And in the course of this sermon, my prayer has been, however it is that we need to see Jesus in this place in each of our timelines, that he would reveal whatever it is that we need to be made aware of. And maybe it's just the fact that this is the kind of God that We gather to worship week in and week out. We're grateful. If you ever had a need and it's been deep and you've been helpless and he's answered it, you're grateful every day for the rest of your life. At least I would hope so. And if you're grateful, then you move on to the next step and say, what can I do to be a part of something that was such a powerful act of grace in my own life for others? And that's just Him working on you. And maybe God's working on you in that way now where He's saying, we've helped you with your need. Now it's time to help others. But here's the question. Do you trust Him? Do you believe that He he can do that through you? Do you want to be a part of the adventure? And it is an adventure. I mean, I, I... I have, have a good friend. Um, some of us knew him as Walt Eibel, who passed away last, uh, uh, I, I believe it was um, early, Saturday, or, yeah, early Saturday morning. And I got a text from his son, Dan, and he said, you know, Walt's languishing. He's not doing very well. And so I, I went over and, and visited with him over in, in Poland, and, and it was obvious that he's going home. But anxious and it was a privilege to pray with him and say, you know, all these promises that you've believed and this hope that you've embedded in your heart for so long is now transitioning into a reality where you're going to be with the Lord forever. And so we need to just pray that you have the grace that you need to let go of what's happening here and go to be with him and all that's happening there. To trust him as his hand leads you from one place to another. And it's great to be a part of that prayer. I don't wish anybody would die any sooner than God says it's time to come home. But it was time to come home. And there was just a sense of peace that happened after that prayer. And it's not just me being some kind of magic pastor or something. It's just me saying, I want your grace to flow through my life. In this set of circumstances. And it was obvious God was kind of working to bring peace and a settledness that wasn't there. And I came home and I, I woke up about, I don't know, it must have been around 2.50, 51, something like that. And I was in a dead sleep and I thought it was time to get up to go to a meeting. And I, I thought, I'm going to check my phone and see how much time I can sleep in just a little bit. It was like 2.50, I'm thinking, I got, it's not time to get up yet. And no sooner than I woke up did I get a text from Dan saying, Walter's passed. And I thought, well, you know, that's just kind of how God works in his own mysterious ways. And I told Dan about it yesterday. We were talking on the phone and he said, yeah, you're the third person that that happened to with my dad. I said, it's, it's just the Lord working. I don't know what it is that he's doing in that moment and why he's waking us up, but it was like, everybody be aware, a transition has happened, and maybe it was a prompting to pray. And it's weird, and it's just an anecdote, but it's God's way of saying, I'm going to show up in ways that are surprising, in ways that hopefully will be a means by which I can work through your life and give grace. So here I end the message, and my... My, my, my question is, as we've looked at this survey of Jesus' life, is, are you at the beginning of this whole story, where you're just saying, I need help. Matter of fact, I need help so much, I need other people to kind of carry me along to the presence of the Lord. I, I can't even do it myself. I don't even have the will to do it. Why did you invite me to church in the first place? Or maybe you're on the other side of it, and you've said... After I've been through this whole experience with the Lord, I want to be a part of something that's near and dear to His heart. I want to help Him with those lost sheep. I want to be a voice that offers that same compassion, that same care, that same encouragement. Because there just aren't enough out there And there's too many people that are crying out in their own way. And you may be here or you may be there or somewhere in between. And so as I end the message, I would ask, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus can restore your life? And if you've checked that box, so to speak, then my next question is, Do you believe that God's grace can flow through your life into the lives of others? And then my question is, are you paying attention to what's going on around you and saying, God, can you use me to be a shepherd in that place, to be an agent of grace, to say prayers that will, I believe, make a difference? And maybe like some friends are doing right now and some people are coming back, maybe God's saying, I'm just going to send you to someplace different for a while, like the Dominican or Thailand or something like that. And everywhere in between, God is saying, no matter where you are, I want you to be a part of it because that's the secret to this whole thing. It's not just me, but it's me through you that makes all the difference in the world. And chances are, you're even here today because somebody came alongside you in the form of a shepherd and said, we need to go to church. Or, you need the Lord in your life. Or, they just kind of held your hand in the process and said, I'm just here for you. And that, my friends, is how it works. That's how God begins the restoration of everything that's broken. Just a small, subtle way addressing a deep and profound need. Do you have a need for Jesus in your life? Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, I just want to offer the substance of everything that we've shared in your word. I pray that it would be in alignment with what you intended when you (laughs) began this mission to help us lost sheep and all of our brokenness and vulnerability to find a savior and a shepherd that would care for us. I just pray that you would care for everyone in this room with the needs that we are willing to admit and the ones that we aren't. I pray that you give us a humility and a lack of pride that says I need you there too. And whatever that may be today in each life, Lord, I pray you'd bring it to the surface and then we could commit that to you as well. And then I pray, Father, that you would send workers to the harvest because the world that we live in is there's no words Lord to describe the mess that is so obvious there are no shepherds out there that care there are seemingly uh, very many voices of chaos and we just ask Lord that you help us in our own sphere of influence to be able to do your work until you come again So find us faithful, Lord, as your church and help us to come alongside those who you see that are hurting and be your voice. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.